Hello and welcome to the Vote Her podcast because when you vote, great things can happen. I'm Mara Davis and I'm very thankful Senator Jordan didn't block me from her cell phone this week. And I am Jen Jordan and I am glad that I am not a resident of the great state of Texas. And that was the reason why I sent Jen so many texts over this week. And I'm sure you, uh, after um, we all learned about this horrible, horrible restrictive abortion law in Texas, a lot of people were reaching out to you. Yeah, I think the issue really was, what does this do and what are the implications for, you know, states like Georgia? I mean, you know, you had these legislators basically come up with this kind of ruse, right, to get around judicial review and um, and having it stopped because it's just so patently unconstitutional under existing law. And so, of course, people are like, well, if they can do it, you know, if the, if the U.S. Supreme Court is letting Texas do it, then what's going to stop anybody else in the country? And... You know, I I got to know you because I did see your powerful speech on HB 481 a couple of years ago, which did go viral. Um, Just a little bit of that. But no matter my faith, my beliefs, my losses, I have never, ever strayed from the basic principle that each woman, each woman must be able to make her decisions in consultation with her God and her family. It is not for the government or the men of this chamber to insert itself in the most personal, private, and wrenching decisions that make every single day. And that's not some smiley, happy statement that's been focused, grouped. That is the reality of our lives. God chose women alone to be the fiduciaries of life, not government, not this body. My experience wasn't about abortion, but it is what's at stake here. It's about the fundamental right to privacy of women. And I think so many of us gravitated towards you when you had those things to say, because we all felt like, oh, my God, I've been there. You, you know, Senator Jordan, you're every woman. And and now it, it's deeper and scarier. I mean, this is really horrific. Well, I think this takes it to the next level because this is almost like the state deputizing private citizens to do some kind of vigilante justice, you know, going out and targeting, targeting people they don't know. I mean, that's what's crazy about this. So usually in court for you to bring a case and and maybe we step back a little bit. Basically, the basics of this law is that at six weeks pregnant, which is really about four weeks, you are prohibited from getting an abortion, right? So the deal is, if you do that in violation of the law, or if you have a physician who performs an abortion in violation of the law, or if you have a friend who's kind of drives you to the clinic, right? They can then be pulled into court by a private citizen, and the private citizen can file a case against them and be awarded not less than $10,000, meaning 10000 plus, And you also would be on the hook um, for the attorney's fees for that private citizen. And the thing that, that makes this so different is that usually to get into court, you have to have something called standing. 
And basically what that means is that this has affected you personally, right? That you have an injury that you are seeking redress for. Here, you don't even have to know the people. You don't have to know the names. You don't have to have ever had any interaction with them. And you can file as many lawsuits as you want. And they can be frivolous. They can be fraudulent. And really, there's nothing that can be done by the people that you're filing them against. Are the courts going to become overwhelmed when if all these people are going to be like looking out their back window, trying to look for women, trying to find abortions? I mean, are people, women having abortions? It just seems like, you know, are they going to camp out a gynecologist's office? Well, and- then that's the question, right? You know, we know the protesters that are at various clinics, right? Are they just going to sit there and, and, and get people's names and then just file lawsuits? Because there aren't any consequences in this law for filing something that's not true. So you just kind of roll the dice, right? And really, the whole point of this, though, is to make it so bad for an OBGYN or a clinic or anybody who's seeking kind of this basic health care service that has been constitutionally protected for, for almost 50 years, by the way. Um, just to make it just so awful that you have physicians that just won't provide this anymore. You'll have clinics that close. You'll have, you know, and that's exactly what's happening in Texas. Is it fair to say, Jen, that this was really designed to mess with the clinics, to shut the clinics down? Yeah. What's interesting is that you can't bring a case against a woman who purportedly violated the law for getting an abortion. But you can go, you know, to the physician. She takes an Uber, right? You can go tag the Uber driver. And it goes even further in that it, it, it says that even if you think about helping and you intend to do that and then you don't, right, that you could still be liable in a court of law. I saw Jody Picoult, the author, uh, say this isn't just Handmaid's Tale. It's literally like the Salem witch hunt. The craziest thing about this is that there's not even an exception for rape or incest, right? So you get a 15-year-old girl who's the victim of incest who gets pregnant, impregnated by her father, right? She she cannot access abortion services. You know, even if she's six weeks one day, seven weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is. And Texas actually has this waiting period, too. So not only do you have very little time, and most women have no clue that they're even pregnant at this point, very little time. But even when you show up, you've got to wait. And so, you know, it it pushes you then out of the ability to even, you know, get an abortion for this little period of time that maybe you could. And, and like you said, that is the point. The point is that this is effectively a total ban, no exceptions for rape or incest. And honestly, they say if there's a medical emergency, maybe a doctor can perform an abortion. But I don't even know what that means. Like how much of a medical emergency does it need to be? Well, could doctors just say, yeah, it was a medical emergency. (laughs) She was under stress and duress. It's just like um, I'm getting a nose job because I have a deviated septum. And we all know that nobody had that. But, but, you know, they can sort of maybe write that off in their insurance or they can do something. So it's just it feels like it's become this wild, wild west. But. And, and there's so many horrific things about it. But the thing that I find really interesting is that there's been very little coverage of this 
on right-wing media, right-wing pundits, all the pro-life advocates. Like, I haven't even seen at this time when we're recording, like Governor Kemp or anybody saying, hey, this is great. The only people who in Georgia that I've been able to see, at least publicly, have been the at least three of the folks running in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Gary Black, Latham Sadler, and... um, Kelvin King? Yeah, that oh, guy. Oh, I did see that yeah. guy, right. So those, right. Three, <laughs> those three made comments, right? But, you know, Herschel didn't. And uh, and nobody else as of the recording of this podcast. And here's what's so interesting to me about that. I think even so there's a couple of conservative talking point things that I've seen. And, and some of them actually look the law in Texas is really, really disturbing. And as Jen knows, and I know from so many of you who are no Jen have been blowing up her phone. You know, I think there's this weird angle of like. They don't want to say anything, but I've seen a couple like, oh, the Down syndrome kids or, oh, the autistic kids. That's been a really weird spin on it. Like, we're so glad they're alive as if anybody pro-choice is like trying to uh, it's, it's, it's so not about that. It's so bizarre that that is that's some of the rhetoric that's been out there. Well, that's just it. This has never really been about abortion. This is about control of women. Right. And women, I mean, this affects everything. And it goes back to, you know, what I talked about on the floor of the Senate. I mean, the the right that kind of, you know, that is identified in Roe, the right of privacy for women, it comes from a case that talks about contraception and says that women are allowed to make a decision to be on contraception and they don't need their husband to okay it. I mean, this is way broader than, you know, this kind of back and forth abortion thing. No, no woman that I have ever met has entered into a decision to have an abortion lightly and, you know, to act like that they do. That is the stuff that really gets me. It really is very upsetting to me because this is such a tough decision. And for men to be making these choices. I loved this quote from President Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki. I thought this was just amazing when she was challenged on this. On the census law, why does the president support abortion when his own Catholic faith teaches abortion is morally wrong? He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Why does the president, who does he believe then should look out for the unborn child? He believes that it's up to a woman to make those decisions uh, and up to a woman to make those decisions with her doctor. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant. But for women out there who have faced those choices, this is an incredibly difficult thing. President believes their rights should be respected. But it is that simple. Yeah. I mean, there there is nothing really else to say. It's like, look, this is a woman's body. This is this is a woman's life. And these decisions need to belong to her. I mean, if we trust this woman to raise a child, we're not going to trust her to make the decision whether she's ready to have that child or not. It just it just doesn't make sense. So what do we do now? I mean, we all feel so helpless. Uh, I was reading there's going to be some kind of women's march coming up in October. 
which honestly is, you know, the Women's March has gotten some bad PR and there are some people that work there. Not great, you know, so it's 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 a murky thing. So but it, what is a march going to do? Well, I mean, I've already donated to a bunch of the charities, you know, because I feel for every one of those women who were waking up that morning and thinking, oh, today is going to be the day I'm going to fix this problem that I have. And now they can't. And, you know, people are like, well, you can just drive to Oklahoma or you can just drive to Louisiana where the clinics are closed because of the hurricane. What do we do? How can we help? I feel so helpless. Well, I think what we have to really do is kind of focus here on our own politics, honestly, because the biggest concern for me is that we're going to import this from Texas and that we will have uh, members of the House and the Senate, um, you know, Republicans that pushed 481 basically, you know, push this through as well um, and say, look, we can effectively, you know, shut down the clinics here in Georgia, too, if we just pass this. And in an election year, you know, that'll that'll get by pretty quickly for these folks. So I think we need to focus on what's going on here in Georgia. I think we need to educate ourselves. And I think we need to run for office and then we need to vote for women. Well, on that note, let's move on to um, people that are not women. And that's the senators uh, that or the people who want to be senators. Uh, Kelvin King, Latham Sadler, Herschel Walker. Uh, Herschel Walker was endorsed by former President Trump, as was Burt Jones running for lieutenant governor. That's pretty early for an endorsement, right? You know, it is kind of early, but I I will tell you when I saw it, especially in the context of the lieutenant governor's race for the Republican primary, that creates a real problem for Butch Miller, who is is running against Burt Jones, because now, you know, people thought Burt may get the nod from Trump, but people weren't completely sure. So now that it's happened... You know, this may cut off a lot of fundraising sources for Miller and a lot of areas of support that he would normally have. And I mean, there's been a lot of stories being written and specifically about Georgia, how Trump supporters who believe the election was stolen, which is what Burt Jones pushes, which is a big old fat lie. But what he says happened as well, that are taking over kind of the local parties And so, of course, that plays into the kind of support that Butch Miller may get um, since now he is running against the Trump candidate. That's a tough one. And then Herschel Walker, as you mentioned, made no comments on the Texas law. And especially he's from Texas. I mean, he's essentially more of a Texas resident than he is a Georgia one. And now he's got the endorsement out of the gate from Trump. I mean, if you're Latham Sandler or Calvin, Kelvin King, what do you do when you get that call? When you see that that press release is put out there, you're like, oh, damn it, we're screwed. Well, that really, since Trump basically recruited him to come here and run. I mean, I don't think that that was a surprise at all. But, you know, it, it really does kind of shut the field down. And I think anybody who's thinking realistically or or being honest with themselves knows that that endorsement of Herschel probably put him over the top in the Republican primary. Great. I, I want to hear him um, campaign. I want to hear him speak. I want to see him in an interview. 
I want to see him being talked to by Stephen Fowler or anybody on uh, WABE or Greg Bluestein or, you know, I'm ready. I mean, he's not sat down and done any interviews. We don't know any of his platforms whatsoever. I know it kind of feels similar to to Leffler, right? I um, wanted to ask you about the DA in Glynn County. Um, with the Amard Aubrey case, that's uh, pretty crazy how now fi- uh, she was already voted out, but now charges are going to be brought against her. Yeah. So Chris Carr's office released an indictment that had come out of a grand jury against the former district attorney in Glynn County, uh, Jackie Johnson. And, and it made a big splash in the media. You saw all these headlines and right, stuff. Right, right. But then when you read the the actual indictment is pretty weak sauce. And it's it's one of these things where it feels like it's almost performative in some way. Like, look what I did. You know, now I've got this this indictment against this person as I go into an election year. And one of the things that that's really kind of odd about it is that, you know, the big the big issue there was that Jackie Johnson had a conflict. She knew the guys. The guys had worked, or at least one of the gentlemen had worked for her or the sheriff's department, something. I mean, th- there was a real conflict. She she allegedly brings in this other district attorney to take over and then reaches out to the attorney general's office and says, hey, I've got a conflict, but I've already you know talked to, to Barnhill down here and, and we're good. The issue is, is that the attorney general is really the person who is supposed to take that conflict letter, look at the case and make a determination as to whom it needs to go to and who it's appropriately sent to. And Chris Carr fell down on the job. And so the whole idea that he's pointing the finger and kind of, you know, shaking his finger at Jackie Johnson I mean, he's got a little bit of explaining to do himself. All right. A little mess cleaning there. And not only that, I feel like all my law experience is from knowing you and listening to podcasts. And (laughs) it's always the cops and the DA in those small towns, man. They're always doing something shady there. Uh, I mean, not always. I'm not saying everybody, but... A lot of those true crime stories, it's always some shady lawyer or somebody knew somebody and how did this happen? And, you know, we figured it out by the end of 10 episodes. (laughs) All right. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is coming out with a book, big article about him, how there's a Republican Party 2.0. Does anybody care? I I don't. And and to be I mean, and I'm not sure that the Republicans in this state do either with respect um, to kind of, you know, what he's putting out. But, you know, uh, kudos to him for going on a book tour. Okay. With that being said, let's get to our guest. Well, I'm looking forward to our guest today. Um, You know, Jen and I find a lot of our favorite people on Twitter. I mean, that's like a regular thing. I mean, that's how we met. So, yeah, it's COVID. It's, it's, (laughs) you know, Twitter brought a lot of people together. So someone I've been like kind of like is one of my favorite uh, people on Twitter here in Atlanta is J.C. Bradbury. And he's uh, an economist, econ professor at Kennesaw State University. And he regularly tweets about the state of the economy 
in Georgia, but about everything else. I mean, everything from COVID to baseball to colleges. And he's with us today. Hi, JC. Hey, thanks for having me. Here we are. Today's the day we're recording before Labor Day. And the governor put out a video about getting vaccinated today. Um, I'll play a little clip of it. Happy Friday, everybody. Just want to encourage all state employees to enjoy their day off and to consider going and getting vaccinated. This is a thank you to those that have already been vaccinated and giving folks a free day to have time to go get vaccinated to help us put an end to COVID-19. You also can get some great benefits from the state health benefit plan if you're to do that, $150 uh, gift card or $450 in state health benefit plan points that will reduce deductibles and other things. Also, if you get a minute today, thank a healthcare hero, nurses, doctors, other support staff in our hospitals, medical facilities, and also our public health workers and National Guard that's doing so much great work on the front lines of COVID-19. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the day. What did you think of this approach? Well, I found it strange in that um, I am a state employee, by the way, so I, I, I see a lot of this information. And uh, it was announced about three weeks ago that we would have some administrative time off for uh, a vaccine day. But we already have administrative time off. You can get time off to go get vaccinated as well as recovery time. And this day, you can is you don't have to work unless like me, you're supposed to be working on Friday. I don't I don't I don't have a class day, so it doesn't affect me. But um, you just got a day off. And I don't understand how that incentivizes anyone to get vaccinated because you don't have to get vaccinated. You could have already gotten vaccinated. And so this seems to me this is this is the opposite of an incentive. It's not an incentive. It's just a day off. So it just seems to be wasting taxpayer resources. And so I just I just find it a strange approach. And I still haven't got an explanation as to how this is supposed to encourage vaccination. Yeah, I thought it was odd, too, in part because you didn't have to get vaccinated to get the day off. Right. It's available to anybody. And not only that, but we don't even know what the return on investment is. So, like, how many state employees are vaccinated currently? You know, what percentage and, and what are we trying to reach? And and, you know, it just didn't seem like it was uh, very targeted or kind of if it's even going to do what it intends to do. And so, you know, I, I tend to agree with you that I think it may just be a waste of of state taxpayer oh, money. It's like kind of performative. And this is what I love about you, JC, on Twitter is because you know, health and the economy are kind of the same thing. And if your people can't get to work and they're sick, then, then you know, obviously your productivity level is is low and people can't come to work. So you push back on that a lot. What, how has that been received by the governor's office? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. The governor doesn't, uh, I don't really <laughs> have any direct contact with, with people up there. And, and like I said, I don't mean to push back on anyone individually, but if you're saying something that I think is not correct, and I think you can see this for me, no matter your political affiliation, I'll hit you right back and say, that doesn't make any sense. And so, uh, you know, in particular, I've been very harsh when it comes to dealing with COVID because there's so many people out there who are trying to minimize this. And, you know, oh, well, the virus isn't that bad. Oh, well, we're not sure how helpful masks are. Oh, well, we're not sure how good the vaccine is. You know, well, you sure seem to keep moving the goalposts here. And so uh, when I see, you know, policy prescriptions, and we have a problem and those policy prescriptions aren't solving the problem, I think we need to call those out and say, 
why do you think this is going to work? And I think, for example, like this vaccine day is a great example of something that I don't think works. And if, you know, I mean, I've also, and I, I'm not just someone who complains about things, although some people say I like to complain, but in, in terms of trying to incentivize things, I mean, Georgia has a lottery set up. Why don't we have a lottery set up for people to get vaccinated? And, you know, how effective that is going to be, I'm not so sure, but we already have a lottery. Why don't we try it? Why don't we say, hey, if you're vaccinated, here's a lottery ticket you get. I think you're going to encourage some marginal vaccinators to get the vaccine. And that's going to cause someone who wasn't going to get vaccinated to maybe get vaccinated. I don't see how giving someone a day off does that. Yeah. in in the day off thing, I mean, clearly it could have been crafted to to kind of get us there or at least a little there. Right. But you're right. I mean, there's really no incentive there. I mean, Mary and I have talked about this. I mean, the, the governor has any number of tools that he could use to really try to push the vaccination rate up. But even in his public statements, he tends to be a little ambivalent. It's like he supports it. And he just really hopes kind of bad that maybe you'll consider it. I mean, it's 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 not kind of a look, you got you need to go get the vaccine. This isn't just about your health, but it's about the health of this state. And, you know, we all got to do our part. I mean, and it's it's just that simple. And and he just can't seem to say those words. I think that's part of the reelection campaign, right? Because are we relying on some people who, you know, they're just a hard no on the vaccine. And, you know, we just hope that they live long enough to, or he hopes that they live long enough to get to the polls. Um, it's a, it's a crazy thing. And, and, and I've really liked your approach to it. JC, I've really been interested in the all-star game, man. The All-Star Game, you're so damn entertaining. It, for those who, well, let me give you a refresher. You know, the All-Star Game was here in Georgia and because of the restricting, restrictive voting bill, uh, voting laws here in Georgia, uh, they moved it to Colorado. And the big number that everybody said was $100 million was going to be taking out of the economy. And you had some fun with that, JC. Uh, tell me your thoughts on that $100 million number. Well, you know, th this is where, unlike COVID, where I'm sort of, you know, just a data hound, I don't have any background in health. I have a lot of background in studying the economic impact of sporting events. And so, you know, not only am I familiar with all the studies, I know the people personally who've done them, I've reviewed them. And so when these numbers started coming about, about the All-Star Game, you actually have to go back before this $100 million number came out. That is, Cobb County was actually trying to justify spending some more money, and it already spent $300 million plus on a stadium, to help fund an All-Star Game. And so some numbers came out that were not even at $100 million, uh, and they were some silly numbers that were put out by the county finance director, which, frankly, he should have been embarrassed because they pulled them off some website. But people don't seem to be embarrassed when they talk about sports economic impact numbers. And, you know, we're we're talking, you know, you know, 50 million dollars is embarrassing. And those are the numbers that were out there. And so then when they pull the All-Star game out of nowhere, someone at Cobb Travel and Tourism puts out a number, not in person, not available for interview, even though she was she gave a press conference the day before that said it was going to cost the Cobb County economy a hundred million dollars. And that is absolutely crazy. To think that, I mean, one baseball game, one day, and it's been studied before, and the effects have been estimated to be close to zero. So to go from zero to 100 million, that's, that's a big jump. And not only that, 
to be unwilling to defend it. No one is willing to defend this number. And they go, oh, well, we got it from this computer program somewhere. Well, who can't? That's ridiculous. That's not an answer. That's not credible number. You shouldn't keep saying it. And we see people all over, not just this state saying it. We had Brad Raffensperger saying it was $100, $100 million. And I loved it when a reporter interviewed him. He said, where did you get that number? He said, oh, well, people have been saying it as if that's some sort of re response. It's embarrassing. But then, you know, you turn on the news and, you know, and it's not even just a partisan thing. You know, CNN, MSNBC, you know, public broadcasting, everyone's talking about this $100 million number. So I'm about to pull my hair out uh, because it is not grounded in facts whatsoever. Literally, someone just made this number up and said, this is what it's going to cost us. And then the funny part was on the national news. They said, oh, well, look at Atlanta. Atlanta has a mostly minority population. You're hurting minorities by doing this. I'm thinking, you idiots know where the baseball stadium is? It's on the other side of the Lester Maddox Bridge. It's in Cobb County. It's not even in Atlanta. And those racial demographics are different. So people aren't even paying attention to this. And it, it really just is, it, it's funny to watch people say it and then double down on it. And so, yeah, I'm going to have a little fun on, with you on that if you're going to do something like that. Well, I think the thing, the reason it really got legs is because the people that were repeating it, I mean, are people who are important, right? And they hold really important positions. I mean, the governor, U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler, was she a U.S. Senator at the time? No, she wasn't. But everybody was touting that number and not just it's like that was a big I felt like it was a big talking point of like a cancel culture, you know, like hot, you know, hot talk. They're point. not going to cancel us, whatever. I Fox still don't News. even I just still don't even understand kind of what this is all about. So, uh, what's the RNC's take on this tonight? The game? Are you going to be watching it? No, I'm not watching the game, but I will be waiting to watch our ad that's going to be running nationally because the RNC wants to remind every American, especially those in Georgia, exactly what the Democrats did to take $100 million away from the small business owners, especially those black small business owners, entrepreneurs, vendors and workers that were waiting for this opportunity to expand their business, to grow their business, to have empowerment, to have more resources coming into their city. But the Democrats failed them, lied to them about the Georgia law and ship the MLB game away from Atlanta, Georgia, to Denver, Colorado. We're going to remind the people exactly who did this and exactly that they lied to them about the bill that actually expands voting, makes it easier to vote and harder to cheat, and has more opportunities to vote than Joe Biden's hometown of Delaware and the city that they're having the MLB game tonight in, Denver, Colorado. But yeah, so it gets picked up by people who have a lot of legitimacy and power in this state, and then they all just keep saying it. And, and there really isn't any evidence behind it. And, you know, I think it's an example of what we're seeing every day in politics generally is that people just think they can say whatever they want, you know, and nobody's going to call them on it. And even if they get called on it, you know, they oh, just well. keep moving. JC, I wanted to ask, have you looked into um, the game was moved to Denver to, to Coors Field? Did they make $100 million in Denver? No, but it didn't stop the governor of Colorado from claiming it was even more than $100 million in Colorado. Oh, <laughs> so, I didn't know that. Wow. You know, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's not just... helpful, Polis. <laughs> not helpful. It, you know, it, it's just one. Of, here's the thing. And I, and I think that it, it's something we have to be honest with ourselves. I'm a sports fan. I like watching sports. I'm an economist. I study things with money. <laughs> 
just because you like it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And I think a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll get upset about that. They go, what do you mean it isn't? You know, and that's, you know, that's when people start sending me, well, here's a link to this. And I'm thinking, yes, that's from five years ago. And actually, I know the guy who wrote that, you know, you took that out of context. And so I, I think people are just very, have wishful thinking. They want things they like to be good. And, and I, I do too, but we just have to be honest about them. And in the case, when it comes to something like an all-star game, just not a big impact of that. And, and but I guess the thing that's so annoying, you don't even have to really understand complicated economic models. You just think about it's one baseball game. The stadium only holds it holds less than 50,000 people. Most of the people who are going live here locally. How on earth are you getting 100 million dollars out of that? It's just people aren't even thinking through. JC, I wanted to ask you about we were talking earlier about the uh, new abortion law in Texas and, you know, and what's going to happen in Georgia and all of that. And you being a sports economist and knowing so much about this and uh, while we're pivoting off the All-Star game, uh, how do you think uh, sports is going to react to this and what's the economy of it and what are the moves? I mean, you know, there is, sports has a long history of, of doing things for political change. I know Arizona in the 90s, they moved their Super Bowl uh, for the MLK holiday. You know, they didn't want to make it an official day. So, like, what what's the impact of it on the economy? So you're talking about, say, if there was an, a boycott of, right. of Georgia for the abortion or Texas and, right now. Yeah. Like, so like what's going on in Texas? I mean, you know, boycotts can be effective and we've seen them be effective, but normally they're for very localized issues uh, in which communities are directly affected. Uh, it's very it's to take a political stand for someone else to evoke boycott as, a, as say, a league is very difficult. So if we say hey, we're not going to hold hold the Super Bowl in Texas because of this abortion law. I, I think that's that's going to be difficult for uh, a league to do. And I think you're going to see individuals speak up, but in particular when it gets down to something like players. So players are going to view things a little bit differently. And so you talk about a, a league like Major League Baseball, I think you're going to have more pro-lifers who are playing baseball who aren't going to be too upset about it. And maybe they haven't even thought about it. I think there are reasons, no matter what your political opinions are, to be upset about how things are being ruled. And people, I think one of the interesting things about sports is that while it has been a mechanism for social change in many respects, people sometimes like sports to be an escape. And so I think baseball and football don't like to get in the middle of it if they can help not get in the middle of it. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the abortion issue plays out, because I think that a lot of governors and legislatures have really depended on the courts to protect them. That is, they can go and advocate for this, and then the courts are going to strike it down. And now if the court didn't strike it down, or Jen, you may know more about this. I'm not a lawyer who can say what will happen. Then, oh, oh, crap, what are we going to do about this? So it'd be interesting to see how, how the response is shaped. Yeah, I heard, um, I was talking to a friend about this, and basically his statement was, you know, I think this is a case of, uh, for the Republicans, like the dog actually catching the car, yeah. <laughs> you know, and how how are they going to deal with this now? But Mara, from my experience, even dealing with 481, you know, choice and reproductive uh, health issues for some reason are treated differently than any other types of rights. And it may be because it is so, you know, polarized and people feel so strongly, but also maybe because it only affects women women and right. you know it, it was one of those things i remember when 481 was going through and i really i was trying to talk to you know 
folks in the business community and saying, why aren't y'all mobilizing the way you you did in terms of RIFRA and the, you know, some of the, the Religious Freedom Act bills that were just kind of crazy going through the legislature? And they really stood on, the, you know, the sidelines. And I do think it it, you know, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that really it just affects women or at least that's how they perceive it. Well, um, you know, sometimes when you do speak out with for social change, like I, I, I was listening to an interview with the what's her name, Kathy from the Atlanta Dream. OK. And how their social justice campaign actually really helped them, like getting into politics and like the whole like Leffler vote Warnock, like that increased their ticket sales and their web clicks. And people really got, you know, suddenly became very attached to it. Then you saw and JC, you know, I'm curious to your thoughts, like the NFL suddenly was involved in gay pride month, which was very new. Yeah. You know, it, it, and you can see the difference in the fan bases. Go, go down to an Atlanta United game and look at how that, how MLS handles some of those issues. It's definitely a much more liberal crowd and they're catering to that. And that's, and that's a worldwide thing, but, uh, the, the, you know, the crowd that's going to the Braves game, that's going to the Atlanta United game, that's going to the NFL game, that's going to the NBA game, going to the WNBA game. Those are all very different constituencies. And I think that um, you're going to see, for example, you know, on the more liberal end, you're going to see sort of the WNBA and MLS are going to maybe be more vocal on some of those issues that they're going to side with more, which when I say they, I mean the fan base. And so you're right or you're right. It's about clicks. We can we can earn something here. While maybe the NFL says, hey, we're going to turn some people off. But I mean, look at how they handled the whole Colin Kaepernick situation. I mean, clearly um, he was still capable of playing football. But the NFL said, we don't want we don't like this focus. We just need him gone. And I and I and I think that was a business decision that they made. But I don't think that would have worked in the NBA. I think in the NBA, you saw players standing up and kneeling and um it didn't really have the same effect that it did on the NFL. Yeah, and I think you're right that at the end of the day, it's congruent with some kind of uh, economic or profit-associated uh, variables. I mean, you're not going to see a business, and that's what sports teams are, right? They're businesses. They have to be profitable. They want to be more profitable. They want to grow their fan base. And so when they take all these variables into account, I really do think that that informs whether or not they want to be political or if they don't. And, and even in terms of being political, which issues they, they will take on and which issues they won't. So, you know, it goes back to boycotts. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But at the end of the day, we do know that economic pressure and, you know, economic variables, in ter- you know, can affect how companies act and how sports teams act um, and, and can really you know, change the narrative when it comes to some of these issues. Well, we're learning that, I think, from all these vaccine mandates that are coming. You know, uh, some of these companies aren't backing down. JC, uh, do you see a lot more of that coming, the mandates where there are people are requiring their employees to be vaccinated? Well, absolutely. And I think part of this is there is a real economic cost to people getting sick, particularly in the workplace. And if you're coming into the office and you're making people sick, or, you, or we can't go into the office and that would be better if you were in the office because people are going to be sick. You know, well, rather than just saying you're fired, you know, doing what Delta was it $200 a month. I mean, that's um, in, in, think about how successful that was for smoking. I mean, smoking cessation. If you want to smoke 
and be a state of Georgia employee, you can do that. But I think it's a $80 a month surcharge. And I don't think many people like smoking that much. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it helped reduce those numbers. And so I think that's a way of what as economists, we call that internalizing the externality. And so an externality is a decision you make has an impact on someone else. So I might be a little bit hesitant about getting the vaccine. I'll say, well, I'm not very likely to get it. I'm young and healthy. I'm just going to go, go about my business. But the fact that I'm also imposing costs on other people, I'm not bearing the cost of that. So if I say, hey, you're not vaccinated, you're, you're, you're imposing costs on other people. Now you have to pay for that. Well, that's freedom too. And so I kind of like that. You know, if you're going to say, well, it's my choice. Well, it's your employer's choice. You know, whether you can come to work or not, if you want to pay the price, then okay, you, you can do that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you want to, you want to bring an extra person to the party? Well, you can pay their way in. And so you want to bring COVID with you? You got to pay that. And I think <laughs> we need more incentives like that. It was a ballsy move of Ed Bastian from Delta. I mean, that was... But it makes complete sense. Yeah, I it mean, does. And look, they're losing money because even if you, you look at it from the perspective of when you have your employees even exposed, right? And then they're at home in quarantine and, you know, these businesses are having to still pay them. I mean, it's one thing if you're vaccinated, it's another if you're not. And I think our vaccination rate and being able to stay open and 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 kind of get this economy, you know, and keep it going. I think that there are, you know, vaccinations and, and open for business are inextricably linked. And I wish other people would recognize that. Well, absolutely. And, and, and I think it's really bothersome for me when people start talking about it's a freedom issue. And you think about, you know, I had to take my daughter this summer, who's a freshman in college, to get extra vaccines so she could go to college. But COVID-19 wasn't one of them. That's absolutely insane. And so, you, you know, you know, and it's a major problem. College campuses right now where I work is that, you know, I get notices every day of students can't come to class. And no one has said, oh, are you sure you're recording your classes? No, everyone wants to make sure that you're an in-person class. You better be there in person. That seems to be the concern. So absolutely, you know, we need to, you know, not be shy about putting some of these in place. And it's not necessarily about your freedom. You have a freedom not to go to college, not to do some of these things. But you don't have a freedom to go there and get people sick. JC, who's your favorite Simpsons character? Oh, my goodness. Simpsons character. Oh, geez. Um, I'm a big fan of Disco Stew. Sort of a Jen's like, what are you um, doing? Because JC tweets out a lot of Simpsons memes, and I love that. Well, good, good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have a. I'm a big fan of the Simpsons, basically up through about season ten, and then I, then I won't watch it. So. Okay, okay. <laughs> Oakley, Doakley. Um, uh, JC, it's been so great talking to you. Um, yes. From Kennesaw State, let us just say, go owls, go owls, go owls, hootie hoo, hootie hoo. <laughs> Uh, you can follow JC at JC underscore Bradbury and uh, salty, salty, f- just uh, salty facts. It's yeah, great. I was going to say salty data, which I dig. Yeah, we love it. JC, yeah. thank you yeah. so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that was great. I, 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 you know, it's so funny. You, you see people on Twitter and then you like get to talk to them in real life, IRL. And, um, JC was really interesting. I feel like I learned a lot. No, I I did think that was a really, a really interesting conversation. He wasn't expecting my Simpsons question. 
Uh, I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I, I want to try to break the ice, you know, so it's not so serious. And this is one of the few times where the guest is actually could see Jen and not me. So it was kind of weird for me because the way we have the equipment set up. So you had a dinner. Then this kind of came up. We were talking about a few weeks ago when Vice President Harris had a dinner of all the female senators at the, her residence, like all parties. Everybody was there for dinner. And you had a similar dinner just like that recently. Yeah, so we started this, I think, a couple of years ago, but we call it the Switzerland Dinner. And you have plaintiffs, women plaintiffs lawyers and women defense lawyers who are on opposite sides of the case of each other come together. And the whole point is to have fellowship, get to know each other and see each other as as human beings, because litigation can get pretty rough and tumble. And at the end of the day, we really should kind of step back and say, all right, all right, we're, we're all more alike than, than not. But you had a good time. Yes, I did. Because <laughs> yeah, I spoke to you the next day. You're like, oh, it was a good dinner. And it is really fun just having a girl's dinner, like just especially like when you're with a group of women who are bright and, you know, just there to have a good well, time. Well, and you know the same people, but they know, you know, they, they might know something a little bit different than you. And so it was really, uh, we had a really good time. Well, that's good. It's good to have a good time because there's been so much doom and gloom. Oh, and by the way, shout out to all those ladies who may be listening. Just Did, did, did you get any feedback like... Hey, I love the voter podcast. I think we have at least one fan. Yes. At least, at least one. That's that's awesome. So shout out to Anna. Anna, thank you so much. You know, that happened last episode. I was talking about my friend who got breakthrough COVID and uh, who lives in North Carolina. And I forgot to tell her I talked about her. And I was like, hey, I talked about you. She's like, I know my friend told me. And I was so excited. So thanks for Thanks for telling Dale that. A lot of doom and gloom, sadly. Of course, we talked about the abortion in Texas. We're, you know, we're going to keep talking about that because we can't, we got to fight back. Uh, but we got hurricanes and we got COVID and we got, I mean, it's like you wake up in the morning and it's like, what is today's dystopia, right? Well, it it, it does feel almost like you can't focus on what what's the bad thing. I mean, we came off the voting stuff, which we're still dealing with, right? And, you know, these voting, these voter suppression bills that, I mean, Texas, what is going on, right? Like, you know, this SB8, this abortion bill, and then the voting bill. Um, and it does, it can bring you down. I mean, and, you know, poor New Orleans. I mean, oh, New Orleans and New York, New Jersey. Yeah, with the flooding. I mean, it, it's just a lot of people are hurting. And so, you know, we should, we should keep people, you know, in our thoughts and prayers. What do you do to escape? Like, what do you, is there something that you put on when you're just like, I just want to turn everything on and put this on or listen to this or read a book or what, what do you do? I watch BBC. Okay. I love the British kind of murder, you know, police, you know, um, love, love George Lightly. He's great. I mean, they're all, Vera, I, Look, I've listened. It's crazy how much I like these uh, these British shows. So, well, I consume a lot of content, but when I really want to escape, I watch cooking shows to go to sleep. Oh, I like cooking shows too. So right now I'm on a Trisha Yearwood kick because I've ran out of Ina Gartens to watch. Oh man, 
So, you know, Michael Simon, he's, he's you know what? Maybe I need pretty to, good. I need to say, you know, I've met him and interviewed him before and he couldn't be any nicer. Like he's everything you want him to be. Like he was really down to earth and cool. I dug him a lot, and, you know, and they're not all that great, but he was pretty great. But Trisha Yearwood like makes me forget everything. It is like such a middle-aged white woman crush I have on her. <laughs> I just every show I'm I'm surprised. <laughs> every show. Well, she grew up in South Georgia, right? Is she I think she grew up in Montezuma. Yes, yeah, so she's definitely like, you know, got that country girl thing. And and I don't even think the food that she makes is good at all. I would not make what she makes. I feel bad. I'm not worried that Trisha's going to be listening to this, but you okay. never know. That's like the most bizarre thing ever. You watch <laughs> this cooking show yes. and you don't even think that the food that's being cooked is good or, or, or is possibly good, but you just love it. Yeah, because she tells stories. She sings a song. She makes a joke. I, she just, I feel like she's my friend, you know? One of those things. Yeah, it's one of those things. <laughs> All right. Listen, um, we need you more than ever. Go to Jen, the number four, GA.com. I'm asking you because she won't, if you have a little extra, donate to the campaign because we got a long way to go. And, you know, we can't uh, let these terrible things happen in Georgia. And Jen is going to change the world for us. No pressure, Jen. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. Uh, you can follow at Senator Jen on social media. You can follow me at Mara Davis. Thanks, Christina Laringer, always for uh, doing such a great job producing this podcast. And uh, Jen's going to go watch BBC, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get some country cooking. See you next time. 